0: Welcome to the BLG Podcast, where we discuss industry trends and legal issues that affect Canadian businesses. Borden Ladner-Gervais is one of Canada's largest law firms, with more than 700 lawyers, intellectual property agents, and other professionals located in five cities across Canada. In this edition, BLG partners Kent Howey and Alan Ross discuss the landscape and key developments in the Alberta electricity market.
1: Well, thank you, everyone. My name is Alan Ross. I'm the regional managing partner in Calgary for Borden, Ladner, Gervais, and we'd like to take some time today to talk about electricity markets in Alberta. I've been looking at the electricity markets and energy markets generally since 1994. My practice includes regulatory law across a whole range of sectors. I have a tremendous interest in a number of changes that are taking place in the Alberta market, which are fascinating, which we'll get into today in a discussion with Kent Howey. I'm intrigued by all things regulatory and many things unregulated, but I'd like to introduce Kent. Kent Howey is a corporate commercial partner with Borden, Ladner, Gervais, in Calgary. He's head of our electricity markets group and is the editor of a very popular blog, albertapowermarket.com and he has over 20 years experience in electricity markets straight across Canada. We're gonna spend some time today talking about the Alberta power market and the big issues that folks are talking about in that market and Kent's perspective on the Alberta market. Welcome, Kent. Thanks, Al. Good to be here. Before we get into our discussions about Alberta, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working in this space.
0: Uh, sure. Um, well, I guess, you know, when, it, when someone asks me about myself, like I, I kind of shaped by two things, I guess. Uh, first my uh, upbringing which I think shapes us all and second from an education perspective and uh, I actually grew up in the Maritimes I'm not an Albertan so I'll uh, start up to rate out I've been out here for about 15 years practicing in the power market but I did grow up in a coal town Um, my uh, grandfathers were coal miners my brother started his career in a coal-fired power plant and so uh, although I don't sit here with a four coal black t-shirt on. Uh, I certainly respect my ancestors and uh, and what coal has done for us uh, up to date. Uh, the other thing from an education perspective, uh, I started my career actually in the accounting world. So I come at it from a business perspective, left the accounting world and went into law and started in Ontario. Um, started uh, practicing in Ottawa actually and uh, got introduced to power Oh, about 20 years ago when um, Ontario uh, introduced its Energy Competition Act and began to uh, re-regulate its electricity business. And a couple of regulatory lawyers, much like yourself, showed them up in my office one day and said, Hey, are you interested in the electricity business? Uh, Having a father and a brother's in the electricity space and what have you. I jumped at the opportunity, started out there um, and moved out here as I say,
1: about 15 years ago to work in the electricity business. That's an amazing journey, Kent. Thank you for that. Why do you find this space so interesting? You know, again, coming back to the
0: business CA training, I also studied a little bit of engineering along the way, but I enjoy the, the market aspects of it. Um, you know, uh, most of the power is, is local, provincial in Canada or state or countrywide. So I like the fact that it's a sort of a localized market. It has its own economics all market-driven prices, and it has technology. And I'm all, always interested in technology and changes, as we're gonna, I'm sure, talk about rapid changes. And then just from a legal perspective, um, always been interested in infrastructure generally, and in when you look at power, you, you you run the gamut from joint ventures to power purchase agreements, you know, BOP contracts, equipment supply contracts. It's just kind of like an interesting corporate, commercial, mixed bag thing. So I'm a bit of an electricity wonk.
1: So dynamic. And speaking of dynamic, the Ipsy conference is coming up on March 19th to 20th in Banff. This is an old stalwart in the electricity scene in uh, Alberta. Certainly been around for 24 years. This is its 24th edition. Tell us a little bit about the annual Ipsy conference, maybe including how it's changed since you've been going.
0: Sure. You know, actually... um, IPSA was that when I moved out here 15 years ago, everybody said you have to go to IPSA-Kent. That's where you'll meet people. That's where they're at. And, and I did. And interestingly enough, I actually got my first client at that Ipsa, IPSA conference back 15 years ago in the renewable space. But I think the conference changed a lot. I mean, when I, 15 years ago, the market, the, I would call it the sandbox here, was quite small. It was very utility-oriented. People showed up. Uh, you saw the same people year after year. Wasn't a lot of other lawyers. Um, you didn't see a lot of bankers, just to the nature of the market here. Um, and, you know, I think I saw the brochure this uh, for this year is a, a market reborn. It's got a baby on it. I, I'd say three years ago, uh, it all changed. Clearly, climate leadership and, 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 and what's going on in the electricity business here has brought in people from all over the world, bankers. Um, it, it's gotten a, a lot more, not, not to take anything away from the utility folks that have been going for 24 years, um, but now it's a hell of a lot of fun, actually, and uh, a, a really diverse group of dynamic entrepreneurial people.
1: I completely agree. I went to my first EPSA conference in 2002, and I've really seen the changes as well, particularly a number of folks coming in in the power finance end of the business in a way that they didn't before and highly international. Uh, I think it's going to be an amazing conference this year. A lot of it will be focused on market change. And let's talk a little bit about market change, if we could. One of the key changes we've seen in the market here is the Climate Leadership Plan, or CLP, seems to be driving a lot of changes in the power market. Tell us about it. What does that mean for power in Alberta?
0: Well, you know, let's start with Climate Leadership Plan. And I think, you know, you need a little bit of a political background or context here for Climate Leadership Plan. we really go back to May 2015 and the change in government here. May 5th, I believe it was, Uh, we all woke up, of course, and found out for the first time since the uh, dirty 30s, we elected a left-of-centre government. Again, in October of 2015, federally, we uh, elected a liberal government, another left-of-centre. Both of those uh, parties and governments ran on climate change and and, and certainly reacting to uh, uh, global warming and, and being leaders in climate, and that was followed in december with cop 21 and everybody charged off to paris and really climate leadership plan to me was was sort of when i would say the new ndp notley government sort of entered the world stage of climate uh for the first time i think as you would you you would agree historically when it came to climate leadership uh, everybody charged onto the stage and alberta really wasn't invited onto the stage um, with, uh, the announcement of the climate leadership plan in 2015, that changed. So for me, climate leadership plan in that context is broader than electricity. So first off, it's not, I mean, electricity is pe- as part of it, but it also includes a cap on emissions in the oil sands of hundred megatons, redu- reduction in methane emissions by 45%, uh, carbon levy tax on carbon, take it over to power and it's, uh, phase out of coal by uh, 2030, replacing that with two-thirds renewables, one-third gas, such that uh, by 2030, 30% of all uh, electricity generated in this province will be uh, generated from renewable sources. So that's climate leadership plan for power, but of course it, it folds into a bigger climate leadership plan um,
1: uh, across the province, it affects all industries. And you know what I find really interesting is many people think that the Alberta climate leadership change started in 2015, and in many respects, especially with respect to coal and power, it did. But many people forget that we had climate legislation and a climate regime going right back to 2007. So Alberta's been a leader in this area for quite a while. I think going back to 07, one of the first jurisdictions to get a, a carbon regime in place. And of course, it is a challenge. I would think, and I'm sure you would agree for a government to essentially sell the decarbonization of power in a province so built on carbon intensive oil and gas. Uh, yes,
0: so I, I will would, not disagree with that. Uh, certainly it's a carbon economy in Alberta um, and and when you talk about decarbonizing the power business or just decarbonizing the economy generally, that kind of flies in the face of that. But, you know, I, I, there's two things I'll say, um, one, um, it's, it's not like everybody in Alberta is a climate change denier. Um, uh, we take in, um, I think it's 20,000 people a year, roughly from other countries. We have great migration, ton of millennials, very young. The demographics of this province is, is changing. It's not like Alberta is, is populated by climate change deniers. The second thing I think I'll say is one thing Albertans do care about. Our uh, jobs and um, and one of the problems we have in this province, uh, even in our oil and gas economy, which is no doubt a, a huge driver, is access to markets. We in the oil business, you know, we're selling our Western Canadian Select at you know twenty twenty five dollar discounts from WTI. We saw this year we can't get our gas out, lack of pipelines. So accessing other markets are uh, important, and I think. Part and parcel of doing that is also doing our part for climate leadership. I don't think, and and I don't think, I think most Albertans uh, recognize that uh, if we're going to be able to harvest our resources, get them to market, then we have to do our part. And one of the places we can do our part is in electricity. Electricity is about 17% of our carbon emissions. Um, We generate 60 emissions from coal or 65% of the national emissions come from this province. So... Selling uh, decarbonization is certainly a challenge, but as I say, it's not like uh, people aren't up to the challenge and it's not like this doesn't align with people's uh, desire for jobs and growth in the economy. These things go uh, hand in hand and uh, I think electricity is gonna serve a role in all of that.
1: Thank you for raising the issue of market. Let's talk a bit about the Alberta market today from a perspective of generation, design, perhaps legacy.
0: Sure. So the Alberta market, uh, you know, Sesame Street says, one of these aren't like the other. Uh, the Alberta market is not like any other in Canada, for sure. Um, and I think that's a product of its uh, historical evolution. Unlike uh, other provinces in Canada, Alberta wasn't electrified by uh, central government. Uh, it was electrified by investor-owned companies and municipally-owned uh, companies. So as a, as, as a result of that, um, our market uh, is different, has a number of uh, long-time historical uh, privately-owned players um, who, uh, like the TransAltas, the Atcos, Capital Power, EPCOR, etc., that uh, came out of the uh, historical market. So uh, our market is different. It's also um, since 1996, I guess, it all began. Uh, the evolution of our um, uh, wholesale merchant market. So unlike uh, other jurisdictions in Canada that have the OPA, and BC Hydro, Manitoba Hydro, uh, we have the only wholesale merchant market where all electricity uh, in the province um, has to be exchanged, uh, if not uh, self-supplied and and used. And uh, that also, I guess, historically made it uh, different with uh, no central planning to date, generators I say to date because of course uh, with uh, climate leadership and and, and the greening uh, we do have some central planning but to date it's been competitive generation uh, companies taking uh, choosing their technologies taking market risk uh, and participating in the market that's on the generation side I would say a little bit about our our, our sort of our customer side because uh, one of the things that makes our market unique is we have a very large uh, industrial load percentage. So yes, we have the consumer, retail, farm users, but over 60% of the market is uh, actually industrial, and that's uh, 24-7 power.
1: So that's another thing that makes us a little different than uh, some of our uh, other uh, provinces in Canada. That's a great overview, Kent. And really, when you look at some of the changes, legislative, policy, even economic and market changes, The watchwords are uniqueness and to some degree history, Um, given where we're at in the Alberta marketplace today, who's generating power today? Who are the key entities? And I know that's changing and we'll talk a bit about that too. Sure. So
0: let's just talk about the market generally. So when we look at our installed capacity, or I always call it the engines that are out there ready to turn our lights on and heat our houses, we have about a 16,000 megawatts of installed capacity in the province. Of that 6,000 is coal. Uh, used to be 6,300, but we just actually uh, uh, shut down our one unit, uh, so we're down to 6,000. Coal generators are, uh, are really only four. TransAlta, more than 50%, Capital Power, ATCO, Maxim Power owns uh, the old Milner small facility. So those are then the coal side. The gas side So six, uh, is about 7,500 megawatts. Uh, so we're very thermal. So if you take the 66,000, the 7,500, you know, it's about 85% uh, thermal generation. And the gas side, uh, which again makes us unique, um, is a lot of the gas, about 4,900 megawatts of the gas is cogeneration. Uh So that's uh, oil sands players um generating steam and heat for their own industrial purposes uh, sag d uh, harvesting uh, oil in the uh, oil sands uh, about 1900 is uh, a combined cycle and then a small bit of 900 of simple cycle we've got about 1500 megawatts of wind and um uh, you know a lot of people don't realize but alberta's again been in the wind business a long time i think the first wind uh, farm ever built in canada was uh, done in alberta um, then we got a mix of biomass, uh, very little solar. So a lot of the gas, I know your question was who, who generates. Come back to, I told you about the coal. From the cogen, general it's all the oil sands companies. So it's the Suncor, the Syncrudes, Canadian Natural Resources, uh, Meg, uh, Imperial Oil. Gas side, some of the coal guys, actually. Uh, so on the gas side, so for example, on the combined cycle, the big plant here is Shepherd, which is a recent one, 860 megawatts, owned by Capital Power. Uh, and Enmax. ACCO has a lot of gas. And then the wind side is just a smattering of, uh, of international players. Again, Transalta has some wind. Capital Power has some wind. And actually Enbridge has a big chunk of wind here. And I would be remiss if I didn't also say that IKEA actually owns two wind farms uh, in Canada. Bought a, one last year. They're second. They uh, generate a lot of power in, uh, in Alberta, more much more than they use in the rest of Canada. So... A pretty international mixed group of generators.
1: A lot of people view Alberta as an oil jurisdiction, and it certainly is, but that's not all of the story. Alberta has a lot of natural gas, and that really feeds into the whole power market description. But let's move to coal and unpack that a little bit. Forced phased out by 2030, coal plant owners being compensated by the government. Tell us a little bit more about coal.
0: Sure. So uh, I think when you talk about our coal plants, you I always sort of group them by age. You know, f- Federally, we've you know always been operating in Canada on a 50-year life. So I kind of look at a number of our coal plants are actually quite old. Um, in fact, 35 years or older. So if you look in there, you, you find plants like Sundance, Battle River, Milner. Sundance, like 1,850 is still left there after the recent uh, shutdown of Unit 1, 700 at Battle River, Et so, a lot of that coal, frankly, was on its last legs anyway. And I call that sort of the subcritical. I mean, the coal guys are always talking about the subcritical and the critical and the supercritical. Um, you know, we move into some other coal plants here, which uh, are sort of 20 to 35 years old. Um, and those are uh, like Genesee, Keep Hills, and uh, Sheerness 1 and 2. But what's quite interesting here um, is we actually have some really new. Uh, coal plants so we have Key Pills 3 and Genesee 3 and they're sort of the uh, f- one was 2005 one was 2011 they're about 450 megawatts each so when we talk about shutting down all the coal plants some of them I I would say were going anyway and some of them frankly came as a bit of a surprise and uh, one of the big debates here when all of this uh, was announced was compensation um, and would they be compensated or wouldn't they be compensated? Different views, um, one side of the market saying, Hey, if you built a coal plant 2011, you must've known about climate change. You should, uh, suffer the consequences. Ultimately the province uh, came to the conclusion that if you're going to encourage investment in this province, uh, and you're going to start forced shutdowns, then you need to compensate. So a deal has been done now with the plant owners, pays out. Um, over 14 years until 2030, about a billion one in total. It's about a, it's a little less than a hundred million a year, and it was all sort of done, uh, actually done quite well. Uh, the province hired a facilitator, Terry Boston. Uh, of course, we went to the U.S. to find uh, someone bright, as we often do here in Canada. Uh, he did a great job. A negotiation was done, which essentially compensated, kind of tied to netbook value. And the fact of the life of plants that would absent phase out or force phase out by 2030 have still run. As I indicated, uh, I think I indicated earlier, You know, we always had the federal 50-year life. So uh, what this did was essentially compensate those owners who had plants that by 2030 would still be able to operate other than the Alberta announcement. So that's been put to bed. Settlement's been done and um, people are charging on.
1: A lot of conversation in this province about power purchase arrangements or PPAs. How does that uh, impact the coal conversation, if you will?
0: Sure. So I don't think anybody can come into this province uh, without having a general understanding of how PPAs are what they are. Um, And so a little bit of history, I think, is needed. Uh, So bear with me. It's always... Uh, tough to explain PPAs, but uh, essentially when um, the market was created in the, sort of the mid-90s, uh, 2000, the province had a problem. And the problem was that 90% of the generation was held by three generators. So they had a, if you were going to create a market, a merchant market, where you had sellers and buyers, how could you do that if you only had three sellers? Um, and they had some options. They could have forced... Uh, the three big generators, the ATCO, Transalta, Capital Power, it was EPCOR back then, but uh, to divest themselves, or you could do a what I call a virtual divestiture. So what the government did was they forced or uh, essentially created uh, these power purchase arrangements. They're not agreements. So it's always a bit of a l- sound like a lawyer when I say that, but uh, they're actually statutory instruments, 20-year uh, deals generally where uh, they broke the units and the units of the units, I guess, or each, I guess Sundance had six units and they created three power purchase arrangements, one and two, three and four and five and six. Buyers bid into an auction, acquired them. And essentially under those arrangements, the buyers paid the owners cost of service, fixed and variable costs, in exchange those buyers for since they acquired them in roughly 2000, would offer the power into the market. Worked great, created more sellers of power in the market, created the merchant market. Worked all great until uh, 2015, 16, uh, when our government, uh, our new government, as we talked about earlier, uh, increased uh, the uh, price of carbon. And uh, lo and behold, uh, maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. Always a lot of gossip on that, but essentially that triggered right of the buyers to terminate those agreements and which is which was kind of a bad thing at the time for the market um or sorry consumers it was a, it was a good thing for the um, uh, those who were the buyers because power prices were low and so uh, as a result of the increase in the carbon levy triggered a change in law clause they terminated those things uh, those ppas a number of them most of the coal ones all the coal ones and they went off to the balancing pool so it was a kind of an odd thing because it's actually a termination where the buyer leaves and a government agency steps in, so the owners didn't care, because they kept getting their payments. But now they got them from the balancing pool, and gets because now we're terminating the terminated ones. So the balancing pool also has a right to terminate those by actually giving back to the coal plant owners their net book value. So rather than continuing to pay out to the end of their lives, uh, the balancing pool has begun to terminate those, and that's a big deal. Because that means that, for example, in the case of Sundance, that unit owned by TransAlta, the units one one and two uh, expired, three, four, five, and six are going back to TransAlta. They're getting a check, but now they have to decide what they're going to do with those units. Uh, Are they going to close them? Can they keep running them as coal plants? Uh, They're no longer going to be assured of getting their cost of service payments that they were getting before. So it's really changing the market
1: fundamentally. So let's move from coal to gas, which is apropos, because a lot of people are doing coal to gas conversions. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in coal to gas conversion, whether we're going to see more gas-fired power in the province, and what does the landscape look like on that?
0: Uh, Yeah, we're definitely uh, looking at, uh, we're hearing more and more about coal to gas conversion. Um, It's the story of the day. As we talked about earlier, the, the age of some of these facilities, in combination with uh, the termination of power purchase agreements, the owners of these plants are, um, are, are getting their plants back. And if we take Sundance as an example, um, the oldest one, owned by Transalta, Transalta has to figure out what it's going to do with that plant. Um, it's now no longer going to get payments under power purchase arrangements from anybody, and it's either going to have to decide whether it's going to close that plant Decommission it or keep it operating.
1: And there's Uh, some interesting reasons, isn't there, why one might move from coal to gas? Things like earlier cash flows economically, higher NPV, but also with an eye on what's happening federally. We're moving federally 2022, $50 uh, a ton. Maybe the province will migrate there, maybe it won't. But doesn't coal to gas help with both those things, both the federal regulatory? and the economics. Absolutely. Those plants,
0: um, have some great assets. You know, they're brownfield sites, they got transmission coming into them. Uh, they got a workforce, they got a number of things. Um, and, uh, recently we've had a change in the way carbon levies have been, uh, are calculated. The methodology's changed, it's tripled the price of carbon to, uh, on, on coal plants. And so, um, they're looking, uh, one of the ways to react to that, if they were to convert these, change out the burners. Uh, putting gas burners instead of coal burners. It reduces the GHG emissions on those uh, coal plants by about half, actually eliminates all the particulate emissions. That's a money saver. That's cash in their genes. And uh, at $30 a ton, it's good cash in their genes. 2022, the feds are talking about $50 a ton. That's more cash in their genes. Uh, we've got low gas prices. And this can be done cheap. So um, you know when we look at you know because the other alternative for them is actually to build combined cycle gas plants there, coal to gas conversions about ten percent the cost, lower O and M costs, sustaining capital maintenance costs, and so it can be done quick, can be done cheap. It's a chance to take us uh, lemons and make lemonade.
1: Now, when you say quick, though, are pipelines any barrier in this? Are they uh, a wild card? Not a
0: not a wild card so much. Uh, be, these ones don't go across provincial borders. So Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Transalta has uh, signed an LOI uh, with someone to actually build a gas uh, pipeline into Sundance and Key Hills is right next door. Um, so they need pipe, but this can be done and uh, be able to take advantage of uh, cheap gas prices.
1: Now, the economics seem to make sense, and operationally it seems to be able to make sense as well. But from a policy perspective, is gas the new coal? Always, a,
0: always. A, I think that's a, a question that generators sort of live in uh, fear of. Uh, so it was the new might be the next coal. But coal to gas conversion is actually a temporary thing. So the life of coal to gas under federal regulations uh, give it about a 15-year life. So we're not talking about huge capital expenditures. Certainly building a combined cycle gas plants, you know, I'm... I'm talking to clients, uh, very nervous about making those kind of financial bets. But if for $50 million a unit, um, you can, uh, do this and, and squeeze out 10 to 15 years of life, doable and whether, you know, gas is the next coal or
1: not, uh, less of a risk. Maybe it's a good, that's a good segue to talk a little bit about overall frameworks policy and the implementation of policy. REP Round 1 results came out in December. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of REP Round 1. What did we see? What didn't we see?
0: Sure, so REP Round 1 is the first. Uh, so REP is the Renewable Electricity Program, for those that are familiar with uh, with that in Alberta. So uh, REP Round 1 was 400 megawatts. The first. It's the first government procurement through the ISO of renewable power in Alberta. Uh, ran all last year, multi-phases, typical procurement you see in jurisdictions or if by you know, expressions of interest, qualifications, bids, and winners announced. And to everybody's, uh, I think surprise and satisfaction, low prices. So, uh, rep round results, average price, $37 a megawatt hour. Surprisingly low. Uh, uh, shockingly low. Half of what we've seen in other parts of Canada. I think what was more surprising to me, uh, that's the average was thirty seven dollars. Uh, four projects um, and a range of prices for the low of thirty ninety, high of 30.90 knocked me off my chair, um, knocked a lot of people off their chairs, wondering how um, you know kind of uh, how how that would work, although one of the projects was an expansion project, so capital costs are likely lower
1: three and a half projects really.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, three and a half, but better than one. Let's face it, Alan. We, we, we. You know, one of the things I worried about it was only 400 megawatts. Could a lot, have been, could a lot have been, of people expected one. Didn't could, they? Have, could have been one big project, and uh, we got three. I'll take three and a half. Um, <laughs> and the other thing that I was, uh, you know, um, I'm sure you hear it as well. But there's sort of I was calling the conspir- conspiracy theorists out there who assured me that Transalta was going to win and Capital Power would win, and you know.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of positives, I think, coming out of this. I mean, one might be the high capacity, proge- uh, high capacity factors for projects. The other that you raise is it wasn't just a bunch of incumbents that came along. There was a diversity of participants and winners. And, uh, I think that's pretty interesting. And the other thing that I've heard from a lot of people is that there wasn't a lot of complaint about process. Sure. There were winners and losers, but not a lot of complaint about how things were done.
0: Yep. Yeah, no. ASO, um, did a great job. You know, the, the, the RISA contract, uh, you know, it obviously was, was bankable and uh, people were happy with that. They stuck to their dates. They said, we're going to do this. We'll run this phase by this date. They stuck with the date. And, and, you know, I haven't got a call yet from anybody who wants to challenge the process. So.
1: Anything concerning in this, though? Will we see low prices create a chilling effect on developers, perhaps?
0: I think that's the concern. I, I, there is a, certainly a concern in that. Um, and that's just the pressure of a, a good procurement process um, uh, driving prices lower. Although I always focus, you know, my own view is a lot of people talk about the $37. I actually focus on the forty-three thirty. So I kind of say, well, you know what? The last project to win which we don't know who it was. I have my own ideas who it might be, but it was 43.30. So if you're looking at rep round two or, and forward, that becomes the price. But I will say I am hearing uh, more and more people looking outside of the rep, wondering if uh, through a corporate PPA, offset credits, maybe a forward strip of some kind, that, that the, the rep, you know, is it a race to the bottom? Can you make money? Uh, Etc. I don't think it'll be a chilling to the point we're not going to see. Uh, there's a lot of money around the world and a lot of developers chasing products, pro- projects. And if you're a business development guy at one of these uh, renewable for- project companies, you better find a market to uh, to compete in.
1: Absolutely, and we're certainly seeing that on the ground here. A lot of people looking ahead, not just to rep round two, but rep round three. What do you expect from those upcoming rounds?
0: So we know uh, rep two and three. So we, 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 we interestingly, uh, in rep round one, we did not have the, what I call the socioeconomic aspects. Uh, rep round two uh, is actually going to be for 300 megawatts. Uh, and it's going to be uh, uh, require uh, projects to include uh, Aboriginal uh, participation. The extent of that participation yet hasn't been defined. We know it's going to be between 15 and 25%, but we don't know uh, the other aspects of it. And REP round three is going to be for 400 megawatts, not going to have an aboriginal component to it. What we do know, a lot of the same stuff we saw in REP round one, uh, five megawatts or more, expansion or new, must-use existing transmission. Um, what we don't know is the contract going to be the same, other aspects, we'll, we're, we're going to learn a little bit about that in the next uh, month or so.
1: I agree with you. I think we're going to see more socioeconomic factors, municipal, rural, indigenous, come out certainly in round two and likely in round three if we ultimately get there before the next election. You know, it's interesting. The solar community has tried to shed a little bit of daylight on how the next rep may be worked. Are we going to see indexed, benchmark, perhaps something else?
0: Yeah, well there's certainly um you know and and in fairness they have some legitimate arguments. So um although the ASO and Alberta said that RepRound round 1 was technology neutral, in substance it was a wind auction. It was structured the way the indexed rec uh, structure worked, those that could generate the most electricity at the cheapest prices won without any regard for uh, the price actually captured in the market. So, um, and of course, the solar folks uh, capture uh, higher prices in the market because they generate on peak hours when the sun is up. We're all up and business is ju- is zooming and electricity is needed.
1: They get higher pool versus the Alberta wind discount.
0: Exactly. And so the wind guys, including the ones that won, are all situated in the south. They all come on at the same time. They all bid in at zero. Other price takers in our market. And so when the wind is blowing down there, um, their prices are lower, but the index REC structure doesn't penalize them. Uh, The government trues them up. And uh, so the question that uh, the solar guys who have been patiently uh, waiting uh, saying, you know, uh, what are you going to do for us? Are we going to have a carve out? Are you going to give us uh, a slice of the procurement? Um, Are we going to move from an indexed REC to some other methodology? And you mentioned a benchmark REC. Um, hard to explain to our audience, but essentially instead of just truing up to the pool price that someone gets, they're trued up to an average of other generators. So essentially if you're situated somewhere where you're not capturing a pool price similar to what a, a, a benchmark or a group of projects, then you're penalized. Some aspect where price or value, um, is, is accounted for. And we don't know my own sense, um... Rep round one was successful. We got an election coming next year. I'm not thinking. Although maybe by the time this podcast airs, it'll be uh, something else. But if uh, I'm 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 not betting for much different than what happened. Thirty-seven dollar average price. Hard to argue with that.
1: I agree. I think they'll go with a lot of the same process they did before. And to your point on carve-outs, if they give a carve-out for one, don't they have to give a carve-out for others? I mean, wouldn't geothermal, for example, be really steamed if they didn't get a carve-out?
0: Uh, yep, they're standing on the sidelines. Uh, hydro developers are standing on the sidelines. Although, I guess I would say, um, you know, from a solar-wind um, and you always have to be careful in Alberta because you, you don't want to sound like a central planner. But uh, wind and solar go well together. So the reality is, if you were a central planner, um, you know, when you think of when the wind blows and when the sun shines, they're actually very compatible to each other. So uh, if, you know, they uh, anointed me God for a day and I got to central plan it might make some sense to have a solar car. You
1: wouldn't do too many nighttime solar projects, I don't think. Financing uh, for those would be pretty tough.
0: No, but uh, I think if you uh, gave the solar guys uh, the value that they're generating, they become uh, much more economic and, you know, I think there's been some studies. I know I've written a, an article on albertapowermarket.com talking about, you know, comparing solar and wind and index rec and benchmark wreck and, you know, there's something there.
1: Thanks, Kent. Great discussion about different technologies in the context of REP. Let's take a closer look at solar, if we could. Why don't we have more solar in Alberta? A lot
0: of people in the solar industry are asking that question. Um, Certainly, let's say one thing, from a solar resource perspective, we have awesome solar. So, Saskatchewan and Alberta sometimes argue back and forth who has the best solar. I'll leave that for for someone else to sort out. We have uh, great solar. Unfortunately, when we talked about our market, the market that was focused on least cost, as a result of that, we, we haven't developed any solar. So today um, we have some microgeneration rules, rooftop stuff that that's encouraged. So we've got like 2,400 sites, about 24 megawatts. We just commissioned the first ever in Alberta. I'll, I'll call it utility scale, although some of the listers in other jurisdictions will chuckle, uh, of 17 megawatts, the Brooks solar project. But that was uh, supported by the Alberta emissions reduction through the uh, carbon levies, uh, et cetera. So because we focused on, um, to date, I guess, in our market design, um, least cost, solar hasn't competed. So even though we have the best, or the, one of the best, we have, what did I come up with there? 42 megawatts. Give you an idea of Ontario has about 2,000 megawatts of distributed connected solar and about 400 megawatts of utility scale solar. So the next, uh, I think the next thing we're going to see in this province is solar. We've had an AUC commission going on on distributed generation and encouraging distributed generation. And I think what we're going to see more of in the uh, coming years is uh, distributed solar. It's going to take hold and hopefully some uh, utility-scale solar to, uh, I'd say, uh, take advantage of that. And also, as I alluded to earlier, it's compatibility with wind.
1: I think solar is going to be very exciting to watch as we move into the next rep rounds. And part of it will be the ability of solar to compete with wind, but some of it'll be the structuring in those rounds too. I mean, when you look at the geography of Alberta, wind is really in one location, solar's everywhere. And if we if we structure a next rep a little bit differently, um, maybe on a geographic basis in addition to the socioeconomic considerations, very exciting for solar.
0: Yep. And uh, exciting that we're actually going to host Cansea in June. So uh, really looking forward to it. So it's so exciting that uh, you know national organizations are looking out into the future and they clearly see Alberta as uh, the next uh, opportunity.
1: This is a place to do it. You know, it's amazing when you read some of the literature on solar. It's a it is an undertapped a bit like geothermal and other aspects of the technologies that we don't see as much of. People think about wind. They certainly think about gas. I think they're increasingly thinking about solar. Yep. Yeah. Another thing they're thinking about is hydro. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Alberta's need for dispatchable power and renewables and hydro. I acted on the 2011 uh, uh, inquiry into hydro in Alberta and that the AUC conducted. And it's what a different time it was in 2011 with respect to hydro. At that time, they were looking at projects potentially in the Slave Lake area, very prospective. That's an ancient time compared to what we are today on hydro.
0: Uh, for sure. Uh, although it's interesting, you know, when you look at a lot of the work that was done as part of that uh, inquiry, uh, you know, one of the things that came out of that was Alberta actually has great hydro resources and we've actually only tapped into less than 10%.
1: A lot of people don't think of us that way, Uh, but we are.
0: Yeah, no. Um, I mean, I I think when you look back, we, we had so much coal that someone said, well, let's just build coal plants on top of coal mines and, uh, we can electrify this province. Other provinces went in a different direction, um, but we went that way. But um, that said, uh, we recently, two weeks ago, we've got the uh, ASO tasks by the province to uh, in, uh, look into and report on dispatchable renewables, including hydro. We've got, uh, so we've got about 900 megawatts of hydro uh, in the province, but some projects uh, that people are working on. So Transalta has its uh, Brazo pumped hydro project, um, sort of, they call it, you know, sort of these batteries uh, where you can uh, essentially pump water up into a reservoir off peak, low prices, and harvest that water uh, on peak when it's needed, sort of like a rechargeable battery. We've got a MISC looking at a 330 megawatt, uh, project on the, uh, Peace River, I believe. Uh, we've got, uh, ATCOs out there, uh, rumbling around, talking thousand megawatts on the Peace, the uh, Slave. We're doing some work for s- some other players in that space who are, uh, looking at the opportunity. So, um, I get, I think when we look forward, but we're going to need a contract because the Absolutely. problem with hydro is the same in every jurisdiction. It's huge capital costs. Yeah. Um, going to need some transmission. Uh, it's huge to build. but the great thing about it is the fuel is cheap. They last for forever. I don't even know if one's ever been decommissioned a uh, hundred plus years. Um, and uh, it's green, uh, it's dispatchable. heck, you know it's a, it, 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 it's a, a great thing. I just question is, you know how are we going to do it,
1: and cost because uh, but course, low operating costs though generally
0: low operating costs. But I, I know we'll have some listeners out there saying yeah, but look at Site C, look at Muskrat Falls, look at Kiosk in Manitoba, huge cost overruns. So, um, but we have we have the resources. Um, the question is. Uh, how are we going to tap into those, and how do we do it uh, without uh, blowing our brains out
1: uh, doing it? When you look at the macro level, it's also a great baseline for power as well, having very strong hydro facilities. Yeah, for sure. So uh, hydro uh, confirm, you know, it, so
0: even the, the 900 megawatts that we have today, which actually TransAlt, I think, uh, owns 90% of it, um, you know, it, it it's a great uh, smoother uh, for the intermittent stuff. It's uh, can be baseload. Uh, can be stored and used. Um, So it's got some fabulous attributes um, we just need to again uh, figure out how we do it financially and transmission is always an issue because you know as the hydro projects I always I worked on a large one in Manitoba and my client used to say unfortunately we can't carry this power out in buckets so uh, we needed a big <laughs> transmission line if, which is never easy to build.
1: If, <laughs> if only we could we wouldn't need energy storage But that's a discussion <laughs> for another day. One of the interesting things about hydro we've talked about Alberta is a very unique market unique regulatory structure for this lots of complexity from the regulatory lens. The Hydro Inquiry in 2011 tried to do some streamlining around this, but you've got environmental assessment, you've got federal, you've got provincial, you've got a requirement for the Alberta legislature to do an order and council approval, a legislative approval. So not for the faint of heart, both economically, but also from a regulatory lens.
0: Uh, absolutely. And then you throw in crown land too, because a lot of these projects are going to be built on uh, crown land. And then you throw in the aboriginal aspects and
1: Thanks, Kent. Great discussion of fuel sources. Let's, sh- let's shift gears a bit and talk about capacity markets and market design in Alberta. Lots going on with market redesign. One of the big changes is going to be a capacity market. Why is that happening?
0: Sure is. Um, so, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, to date, uh, Alberta's had an energy only market. problem with an energy only market is you only make money when you're dispatched and you only make uh, money um, based upon the prices, which cycle up and down. And so when you look at redesign and bringing in renewables and phasing out coal, um, we're going to have reps that are going to procure renewables. The question is, and has always been from the beginning, uh, what about the dispatchable power? Is that going to show up? Uh, it's not going to get long-term contracts. And so uh, the capacity market is a response uh, essentially to uh, incent or encourage Uh, the dispatchable power to show up, the thermal stuff, the gas, the cold gas, uh, that kind of stuff.
1: And Uh, of course, you know, in our industry, what we're seeing is a lot of people asking the question, is it financeable? Do capacity markets make projects financeable?
0: Yes. So uh, when the uh, ESO looked at, uh, are these projects going to show up, they they realized that no, uh, we need, uh, besides the energy market, we need some revenue certainty. We need some stability. We need some uh, long-term uh, certainty. So we are going to have, uh, design's been going on now, uh, all the uh, power economists have been having great times. We've had SAM 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0 through 2017. And the ASO just released uh, the first comprehensive market capacity design, still in draft. That's going to be finalized uh, in 2018 for the rest of this year. Uh, And we're going to have our first forward capacity uh, auction in 2019 for delivery in 2021. And so what's that kind of going to look like? We're going to have um, uh, annual three-year-ahead auctions uh, where uh, uh, generation sources with capacity, and there's a lot of work going on, uh, what capacity everybody's going to be able to bid in, renewables, uh, how much capacity, the thermal guys, how much capacity. uh, But they'll be able to bid in and uh, be awarded uh, a capacity contract, uh, in a uh, capacity market. At the same time, they'll still participate in the energy market. So this is a payment for capacity. They'll have a revenue stream for that. And they'll have a stream for revenue for uh,
1: energy as well. Are existing renewable generators happy about this? I thought there was an issue that they might be excluded from this event.
0: Well, they're going to be, uh, that's uh, you know always who's going to win and who's going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reality is, the economists will say uh, that with a capacity market, the total revenue for uh, generators will not change, but some of it will come from the energy market and some will come from the capacity market. So if you're a renewable guy today, uh, you're not in rep. Rep people are excluded. They're going to get their 20-year RESA contract. But if you're a renewable guy today, you're participating in the energy market, you're earning uh, energy revenues. Uh, when the capacity market comes in, the expectation is that price will fall. So we're going to have uh, downward pressure on energy prices. And renewable guys, the existing wind guys, we don't put them out of business. I don't think the ASO wants to put them out of business. So their question that they're asking, and the ASO is working through, is how much capacity will they be able to bid in uh, because of course they're intermittent or variable. I uh, have to say variable. I have some renewable people who hate the word I- intermittent, um, but um, like wind. Like wind. So uh, the wind uh, guys are, uh, and so we're talking. And I don't want to get into uh, you know too technical, but we're going back and looking at five year past and a hundred hours where you know the supply cushion or the difference of capacity versus the energy needed and uh, what did the different renewable uh, sources generate in, in those uh, periods so we will know i think in the next 6 to 8 months where they're going to stand and uh, we'll uh, we'll hear then as to whether these existing folks uh, are hurt uh, the renewable folks are hurt by the capacity market or do they feel that would, that the mix after the 2021 auction, or
1: for the year 2021, the mix of capacity and energy revenues will be sufficient. And of course, notwithstanding that we're in Alberta, this isn't the first rodeo for capacity markets. We've seen capacity markets in PGM, for example, the United Kingdom and Ireland, among other places. So there's some pretty good learnings, I think, out there on how these markets operate. But once again, Alberta is unique with its legacy in the power sector. Uh, Unique and small. Mm -hmm. So, uh,
0: remember, um, you know, when people talk about PJM, um, you know, 13 states and, you know, 60 million customers, Uh, you know, I think we'll have the smallest capacity market in the world uh, when we uh, bring it in. Uh, We're a weekly interconnected market, so... um, you know, there's there's a lot of differences between us and PGM and the UK and New York ISO and and even where we started coming from Energy Only and migrating to quite a changed marketplace uh, a very changed uh, marketplace. I must add though one of the uh, issues I've been watching is the delivery period. Uh, I think when we you know your question earlier was around uh, financing and project financing. And one of the questions that has become out of these working groups is how long the contract or the capacity contract will be for either new or existing generators. Commitment period. The commitment period, the delivery period. So when I bid in in a three-year ahead in a number of markets, including PJM, UK, new projects, projects that are being built are given the opportunity to have a longer term contract, giving them the revenue certainty. So they don't have to bid in, win that one year contract or delivery period, commitment period, and then have to bid again the next year and hopefully win again. Project lenders don't like that. And so there's been a push by uh, those I would call that are um, non-incumbent, interested in new projects to have longer delivery periods or commitment periods for new projects and to date they've been unsuccessful um through sam various versions one year delivery commitment period keeps appearing it was in the aso comprehensive uh, design plan although it was uh in red and in red and uh, the meaning it's still open to discussion.
1: Red in red, if you will.
0: Yes. And so, uh, it's, uh, going to be something I'm going to be watching over the next, uh, six months to see where they're, you know, that gets stretched out for new stuff to three or seven years. I don't, the ASO said no to long-term contracts. So I don't see, uh, you know, 15 years, I think in the UK, I don't see that transitioning into Alberta, but I wouldn't be surprised if we
1: got to three. When we look at Alberta pricing, it's coming off of really historical lows, 15-year lows in many cases, some would say. Uh, others might say that's unsustainable. Lots of reasons for this, including you know where coal is at in the overall system. What are some of the pressures driving prices and price increases uh, in 2018? So definitely
0: coming off uh, low prices. So you know, context-wise, since the creation of the market, prices are sort of 50 to $65 averages until we get to 2015, 2016, when as a result of excess capacity, cheap gas prices, uh, some would say the involvement of uh, government agencies in the market, um, we, we saw a plummeting of prices into the teens, um, and uh, basically unsustainable uh, prices. This year, uh, the forecasts are that the pool price will uh, double. So last year's average, about $22. Most of what I'm seeing from the uh, experts, uh, and I'm not partaking to be an expert in forecasting pool prices, but a few things that are driving that. Uh, one, we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, carbon levy and uh, one of the things that happened Jan 1 is the methodology changed which uh, increased the carbon levy on coal plants and um, tripled their cost of carbon and uh, the estimates I've seen that's added $12 to the pool price just on the merit, the stack, the way offers are made, uh, how coal is bid in So that's been a driver. We've got Transalta. We talked earlier about Sundance. It's in the process by uh, the end of March, we'll have 1300 megawatts of uh, power taken out of uh, coal, taking out of the system. So we have uh, lower coal. Um, Sundance, Transalta is also as a result of the termination of its uh, power purchase arrangement by the balancing pool is going to take back, offering in the remaining 800 megawatts. So. There are uh, pressures uh, on pool prices, which are uh, going to increase prices. But, I mean, we start from the premise that when I say increased prices, I mean going from unsustainably low uh, teens, low 20s, to 45-ish averages,
1: uh, which are still less than historical norms. The 50 to $60 we've seen historically. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see whether that new price point is going to be able to facilitate further growth, further development. I mean, we talked a bit about financing, whether that kind of price level will underpin the ability to do further development.
0: I think uh, capacity market coming in, which we talked about, combination with higher prices, you know, We'll 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 see. I mean, historically, you have to remember we did this in a merchant market. So since we created the market, we built nine thousand megawatts of generation without rep. Yes. Um, you know, without capacity markets, uh, etc. So uh, I'll be interested to see what the reaction is going to be to this increase in pricing and whether we we might see. We talked earlier about the chilling effect of wind prices. So when you get into Increasing energy prices, a capacity market, uh, carbon credits, you know, will we see renewables being built outside of the rep, for example?
1: Well, it's fascinating when you look at the pricing, not just generally for pool, but also the pricing that took place in rep round one. I mean, it's uh, fascinating to see where we all ended up over the last few years. Um,
0: Yes. So, I mean, when we talk about $45 price, $37 rep average, Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden someone starts to scratch their head and there's little deeper story there. We talked earlier about the wind discount and what have you for that. So when I say the average is $45, it doesn't mean that the wind guys are going to capture that price, but you had the Notley government a year and a half ago, trying to get out in front of fear. There's a great fear in the market that with the phase out of coal and the bringing in renewables, oh my gosh. Astronomical. Ontario is going to happen here. We're going to be, you know, huge price increases. She got out in front of that and uh, agreed to cap the price at the retail level. So don't confuse anybody on the market itself, but essentially to subsidize small consumers, those less than 250,000 kilowatts, which are the small commercial residential folks at 6.8 cents. And when she did that, pool prices were, as I said, the teens. Uh, Now, all of a sudden we're talking into the forties and I saw an article the other day, sort of asking the question, wow, you know, is actually the government going to have to start writing checks as the
1: prices increase and normalize. RISA contracts are a critical component of the commercial framework for renewables in Alberta. What issues are you seeing or hearing about and what gives you cause for concern?
0: Well, I think you know the initial uh, cause for concern was that it was just different than what everybody else used in other markets. So instead of a long-term contract where they purchased power, we had a contract for differences. Um, essentially, um, you know, that trued them up to a price, a strike price based upon the pull price uh, that they captured in the market. But uh, one of the uh, requirements of that uh, structure is you actually have to be dispatched. So in other words, you actually don't get a payment if you're actually not dispatched into the market and so curtailment. So I was just in Toronto at a power finance conference, uh, two weeks ago. And, and one of the big issues for project lenders that they're really struggling with in Alberta is the whole issue of curtailment. Um, the contract deals with different recent contract deals with different kinds of curtailment, but the big one it doesn't deal with is excess supply. So essentially if what in a situation where all of the price takers bidding power into the market, the zero price guys, which include the wind guys, were more than the power we need it, they all get curtailed. And um, that cost under the RISA is actually borne by the generator. And of course, their lender bears their, that risk. It's not capped. And in other markets, uh, it was. So uh, when uh, lenders are looking at uh, the form of RISA, they're trying to figure out what is that risk of, uh, curtailment under what we call out here, the supply surplus rules. I think it's 202.5 under the ESO rules, um, is a, is, is a big issue. And, um, and, and I had a number, uh, of, uh, lenders, uh, looking for advice on, uh, how the heck do you model that on a 20 year contract, not a risk today, but if you're going to lend money on a 20 year contract and the ASO is going to build out 5,000 megawatts of renewables, that supply uh, curtailment surplus can be an issue in 10 or 15 years. And the feeling is, and I would agree with it, that the ASO, uh, as the party that's going to decide how much of this renewables get built, and signing reases or different arrangements, are the best ones to measure, manage that risk, and take that risk, and it's unfair for generators uh, to take that risk when it's really beyond their control. Because you could be ready, willing, and able to generate and be curtailed. Nothing you did and no payment. Seems uh, unfair.
1: So to wrap up, as you look forward to the rest of this year and into 2019, what are you watching for and what do you see as being of fundamental importance for the Alberta power market?
0: So some of the things we've talked about actually, so capacity market design is going to dominate uh, the year or be a big issue. And and I think, you know, how existing renewables are treated in that, how much uh, capacity they're going to be allowed to offer into that process. Uh, how capacity market design is going to affect coal to gas conversion because those folks are only going to do cold to gas conversion if they can get capacity contracts and there's going to be questions around what kind of capacity contracts they can get. So uh, that's certainly uh, going to uh, interest me. Delivery period I talked about earlier, I guess for the, you know, the ASO listeners out there. I mean, if they did this to, uh, you know, for revenue sufficiency and certainty to encourage uh, new generation, I know there's issues around, uh, you know, procuring too much and longer term contracts and what have you, but I'll be watching that issue, uh, closely wrap round two and three are going to happen and we're going to get results by, um, December. Uh, First Nation uh, aspects of Rep Round 2, great interest to me. I've had some meetings with some First Nations. I'm uh, getting some calls from developers. Um, so uh, that 15 to 25%, how that's going to uh, work out. Pricing, you know, um, you know, 43.30 is the high last time. What's the pricing going to be? Uh, the form of the RISA, we talked about index REC, benchmark REC um you know uh, again i think uh, going to be quite uh, critical i'm very much interested in uh, hearing what the uh, province is going to come out on distributed generation so all that work went into the auc all that views were uh, expressed so i think hopefully in uh, sometime soon this year we're going to learn more about what the government's going to do to encourage uh, distributed generation uh, we're also going to hear about dispatched renewables and hydro So we're going to find out, you know, are, are we going to get large hydro, uh, in this province, whether it's going to be pump storage or whether it's going to be a brand new reservoir, run of the, run of the river hydro, or what we, what we're going to get in that regard. So, and then of course we're going to start into the politics. Mm. So if 2017 and all of the changes and the roller coaster ride wasn't enough in 2016 and 2017, I think 2018 is going to be more of the same, which, uh, frankly, is why I love power and uh, why it uh, gets me jazzed.
1: What's past is only prologue in the power sector, isn't that right? For sure. Well, thank you, Kent. I really appreciate your sharing perspectives with us today. Thank you for listening to this BLG podcast. To learn more about Alberta's electricity market, subscribe to albertapowermarket.com or visit us online at blg.com. If you would like to get in touch with us directly, you can reach me at aross at blg.com, and Kent can be reached at khowie at blg.com.